0: You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Honolulu Mayor-elect Rick Bangiardi hit the ground running after winning the general election. We spoke with him this morning about naming former Councilman Mike Formby as managing director and on the progress being made assembling his cabinet.
1: It's been 12 days, you know, and it's been very fast. I I didn't pay attention to all the people who told me after the election to take time off. We didn't. We started hitting the ground running. And, you know, in fact, my very first day, Mike and I took a two and a half hour meeting that same day in the afternoon after they finished all the interviews in the morning. Uh, with Kirk Kirk Caldwell and his team, you know, and and since that time, a lot of what we've been trying to set up is the transition team and trying to figure out how we're going to do in the protocol. So, you know, I've I've sort of delegated that to Mike. I did go to the HR meeting to introduce myself and told the people at the city how excited I am about this process, but, you know, the long and the short of it is we've had to sort of line up everything now to start taking in resumes, evaluating existing people at the city and county, um, you know, and who's going to stay and, what we're gonna to have to do to, you know, complement that, if you will, just who we might have to come join our team. And so that's a very exciting prospect. I said throughout the campaign, the job one for me was gonna be about the team that we put around us. The other day we, we actually again Mike and I spent two and a half hours with uh, Mayor Caldwell and his chief of staff, Gary Kurakawa and it was at that time we listened specifically to the mayor and his recommendation of his cabinet people as well as other political appointees and I think he felt, you know, an obligation to do that on their behalf, and we understood that, and so we spent time doing that. And then in between all of that, Catherine and I spent probably last week more than a dozen hours on rail in different meetings, and you might have seen my, my statement to the press, um, which was one mayor at a time after having done a fair amount of due diligence and taking meetings with Andy Robbins and other people um, to listen to uh, – perspectives all the way around with respect to what was the focal point last week at the heart meeting, um, we decided to stand down, And that included names of people who I didn't say in the press, but I did talk to Jane Williams from the FTA, and I certainly spent time with uh, Andy. I certainly talked to Mayor Caldwell and his team, and um, and really felt that we had done, along with others, uh, I I even mentioned Terry Lee, one of the heart board members. So... After we looked at all of that and we, we, we talked to some some people in the Senate or whatever and we, we looked at it and we thought, you know what? They've been at this for the last 8 to 10 years, and I don't want to step in right now. So we'll let that stuff play out. But rail has taken up a lot of time over the last 12 days.
0: Well, I think you're fortunate because you have Mike Formby, who is familiar with the inner workings of, you know, the Heart board, as well as the city side, the DTS side. Right.
1: In fact, Mike and I went out and we visited with the bus. Come. We spent a couple hours. Our bus operation, which is a phenomenal operation and, and really does an incredible job, 10% of the city operating And So we went out and spent a couple of hours. I really wanted them to this. In the bus and the handy van and what things were with them and, and that was very educational as well. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Mike brings a unique depth and breadth of experience on some matters right now. They're going to be absolutely crucial as we begin to look at what we line up and how we're going to do it with the city.
0: Some might say that the second most important position in your cabinet is your uh, chief legal officer, the corporation counsel. Yes, and there's yes. been a cloud uh, over that office because of the. F- FBI investigations. Well,
1: one of the things that we are going to do is have conversations with Paula Aoki, who's the interim right now, who succeeded Donald Leon. And I've known Paul, and I was a very competent lawyer for many years. He and I have a long history together. But we've also been very gratified, Catherine, at uh, people who've submitted letters of interest and in their resumes. In fact, quite honestly, we're surprised. So right now I'm not at liberty to say who those names are, but I think I'm feeling very good about potential he, we have right now on how we're going to structure that office and who's going to lead it.
0: You did uh, make an announcement, too, about your plan to uh, review this whole compassionate disruption protocol yes. that Mayor Caldwell yes. has had in place.
1: Honestly, we've not had our homeless meetings yet to get into the specifics and what we're going to do, but I, I felt for a long time, in fact, prior to my even running for mayor back when I was at Hawaii News Now and doing editorials and even through our newsroom coverage and having worked with lots of homeless service providers. And quite honestly, just look at the history of what the point in time count has represented and where we are on the subject of homelessness that clearly, and most people will tell you, that hasn't been working and not working for a long time. So there's this sort of a... Two things go involved there, and what you can, what happens with chronically homeless people, where you take them, what we're going to do, and at the same time, you've got this incredible garbage, if you will, that gets created, or, or all that that stuff that creates that unsightly mess. But we're going to have those meetings this week. Honestly, uh, last week, rail took up a lot of time. Uh, in addition to this transition team, it's only, like I said, it's been 12 days. So we will do something very different. And, and I've actually, in that announcement, when that came out. I've heard from a lot of people saying thank you, and mostly people not only in the homeless service area, but also from the state level. In fact, last week, although we didn't discuss homelessness, but Governor Ige was very gracious, and I spent a couple hours with him, too, and talking about the working relationship between me and him, or if you will, the governor and the mayor, and how he was looking at situations. And so, you know, I try to do as much... Uh, as possible in just a short time frame on orientation, we're now going to start moving into, you know, some of the more strategic kinds of things we'll do. So I can tell you that we will do things differently with homelessness. I just, I can't give you the details right now, but I'd be happy to share those with you. I also spent a couple of hours with uh, Chief Ballard as well in trying to get her overview, her take as, you know, Chief of Police. So... Those things just take up a lot of time, Catherine. Just you know, you've got to insert yourself now, and I'm a new personality, if you will, in this context. So some of it for them and for me is just getting to know each other and get perspective and having those conversations as a newly elected, you know, mayor-elect. Um, candidate and now going to have a very different working relationship with them as opposed to what I've had in the past.
0: You know, leading up to the general election, you know, you appeared on many mayoral forums. And one of the things that has come up is the whole uh, issue of illegal vacation rentals. Mayor Caldwell was of the mind that, you know, fines would rack up and they would adjust them. You know, they would work out a settlement. But some are calling for Stricter enforcement.
1: Stricter enforcement of illegal vacation rentals is a must. You know, we had 10.5 million visitors, and as I understand it from the people in the hotel and visitor industry, about 2.5 million of those people were staying in illegal vacation rentals. And quite honestly, that was out of control. It put way too much pressure on our resources here. I think the hotels have told me that they could have handled that capacity, but the difference is that. What that did to tourism is it moved into everybody's neighborhood as opposed to, let's say, the three centers of Waikiki, perhaps Coolina, and even Turtle Bay, for that matter, even though it's been closed for a year for remodeling. So that became very disruptive, and especially what it did to even just property values and other kinds of ramifications and housing availability, et cetera. It's a very complex thing. So DPP was charged with that responsibility. I think it, we made it really clear the Department of Planning and Permitting was talked about almost countless forums, came up every single time, is has been a department that I said on record is broken. The city did an extensive audit, forensic audit, in 2019. Those results were presented on January 3rd to Mayor Caldwell and the council. Uh, but not a whole lot got done this past year. And I guess we can write stuff off to COVID. But clearly, we made promises that we're going to really lean into that problem. It has been the holy grail for mayors the last two and three I've been told about fixing it. We're at a point in time right now where it absolutely has to be fixed. So there are a lot of issues involved from personnel to the modernization to the money, the numbers of people working there, morale, quite honestly. I think, quite, you know, we need to look at the overall department, you know, because not only were they responsible for... All the planning and permitting and it's you know it it goes without saying that most people know it takes forever to get a simple permit even if you're a private resident to the construction sector but they also had oversight of illegal vacation rentals and also on the building of monster homes of which was another sore spot rightfully so with a lot of people so to me it was a department that was almost overrun and wasn't able to execute on any level whether it was the granting of permits on a timely basis certainly the monitoring of illegal vacation rentals, and for that matter, monster homes. So that's one of the biggest areas we're going to lean into right away. I think one of the things, Catherine, that's happened here is that, and I just had a meeting this morning earlier on, on just how slow tourism is going to be, and just even my experience of flying over the weekend. It's the first time I've been on an airplane since before COVID, and it was a nice, easy flight. I thought the airport was really efficient the way it worked, but then again, it wasn't really huge crowds of people, and I would simply flew over to Kona. I think that we see the tourism now, for, for many reasons, is going to come back slower than we want, perhaps, and, you know, or even need in some cases, but it's going to be a chance for us to sort of monitor things, and I think one of those things might be, you know, from the standpoint of those other kind of alternative housing situations, you know, what gets done there. I have not had the time to look at the alternative. I know that we've had permits, so I think, in place for vacation rentals in the proper zone since the 1980s, and nothing's been added since then. I don't know what's evolved on a going-forward basis. I just know that tourism is still is not a dirty word. We are going to still be relying on tourism, ultimately, as a major opportunity for us as far as you know revenue into the state, and, and much needed so, uh, given the infrastructure, given the iconic appeal of Hawaii, et cetera, all of that. So there's no denying that. do still know what that timetable is going to be. But, you know, at the same time, I think we have a really great opportunity to recalibrate. We were overrun in 2019. Remember when we did stories, I used to sit there and say to myself and look at some of these crowded places and knowing that what was happening uh, in a number of different sectors in the island, wondering whether or not the visitors were actually having a good experience. Worse yet, though, worse yet was the fact that local people were getting subordinated to this sort of massive humanity. It just the whole thing felt like it was out of whack. So, you know, I, I don't know when. Would ever get to ten and a half million visitors? I think we could probably absorb that, but that's a long time away. So I think in this process, an unexpected timeout that we never thought we would have, we get a chance to recalibrate all of this on on what we do with tourism. I'm really pleased about John DeFries being the head of HTA. Is somebody who I really want to talk to. I've known John for a long time. I want to get his thoughts and how they're seeing it. We've not been able to do that. He's a really a smart guy. I think it's really good there. And you know, I've had actually discussions with HLTA as well and. I was not able to be at a thing that had a Zoom the other day. It was, it was it was right during the time we had scheduled to meet with Mayor Caldwell Friday afternoon, so we couldn't change that. I actually, during the process of the elections, did a couple of Zoom calls, and mm-hmm. I was pretty encouraged in listening to the hotel management and things that they were talking about and what they wanted to do and, and, and how supportive they were. So I, I think, you know, look, this thing has brought all of us to a place we never thought we would be, and I think it's created perspectives. It's certainly brought people to an understanding that we're going to have to be better than we've been before. We're going to have to come together, work together. And I, I and I really think that there's some real silver linings that have happened as a result of COVID, and we shouldn't waste those opportunities. It's brought us to a place right now where we can we can do things better than we ever did before. We have to stay positive about that. I want to be as optimistic as possible as a leader, Kathy, because, you know, how else are you going to overcome fear and uncertainty other than to be positive and the things that you do, the actions we take, and and, and, and learning from even things that we now have a chance to course correct.
0: That was Honolulu Mayor-elect Rick Blangiardi talking to us this morning about the transition as he prepares to be sworn into office.
2: Support for HPR comes from Island Tax Solutions on Oahu, assisting individuals and businesses by negotiating personalized tax solutions with the IRS under the CARES Act. More on Facebook or by calling 731-8100. As a community-supported organization, over one-quarter of HPR's operating funds come from local businesses. Mahalo to Honolulu Waldorf School and Dowling Company. They are among the nearly 200 organizations that include HPR as a part of their communication plan. And they help us further our mission to educate, inform, and entertain our island community. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org.
0: This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard koyas. <laughs> Today we celebrate King David Kalakawa's birthday, born 184 years ago in the early morning hour of 2 a.m., He was delivered in a grass hut compound belonging to his maternal grandfather at the base of Punchbowl Crater. His name, Kalakawa, translates to the day of the battle. He was fondly known as the Merry Monarch, and the kingdom marked his 50th birthday with a two-week jubilee. It officially kicked off with midnight fireworks set off at Punchbowl. At sunrise, the king's police force, the king's cabinet, and other officials streamed through Iolani Palace to pay tribute. The music of the Royal Hawaiian Band could be heard throughout the day. The palace doors were also opened in the afternoon to allow the public to pay their respects to the king. Once the sun went down, lanterns, candles, and electric lighting threw a flood of radiance over the palace and grounds. That evening was capped off with a fireman's parade and fireworks. The birthday jubilee ran for the next two weeks with festivities that included a regatta, a jubilee ball, a luau, athletic competitions, and a state dinner. For today's quiz, what was the price tag for the King's Golden Jubilee? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
3: (laughs) ¶¶
0: the valley isle just yesterday the lahaina plantation and began welcoming visitors back its main property the kaanapali beach hotel is shooting for a december 1st opening it's been shut down for renovations and while the entire property doesn't expect to be fully open until the early part of next year its plan is to start slowly we talked to john white marketing manager of the maui resort about getting back in the game
4: When we open up on December 1st at Kanapali Beach Hotel, we'll we'll have full beach access, all the Hawaiian activities that we're normally known for, our evening entertainment uh, will still be there and then the employees that, that you always love and know. For Plantation Inn, we open Plantation Inn November 15th, and that's our adult-only 18-room bed-and-breakfast in Lahaina. What's the capacity there? For Plantation Inn, it's 18 rooms, adult-only, so we only, uh, maximum is two people per room. So it's uh, much more of a bed-and-breakfast, open um so there's lots of open space for them to enjoy. And then also, Gerard's French Restaurant will also be opening with a revitalized menu down there.
0: What's the rollout for the rest of the resort? For the
4: hotel, we will roll everything out in February with all of our premium rooms, which is 61% of our inventory. And then our brand new oceanfront restaurant, Hui Hui, we'll roll that out towards the end of February. So we're very excited. And it's been a small blessing to be able to, to have the re, the resort be down and get, get all this noisy stuff done while nobody's here.
0: Did COVID affect your construction schedule at all?
4: We added more elements to phase one um, this year. The, the schedule um, still stayed true starting April 1st, but we just added in a whole nother wing of rooms to take advantage of, of being down.
0: Normally, it takes about a month or so to, to ramp up, right? It,
4: it takes a while, and um, the great thing is is that we've been learning and working with other hotels and partners to find out what adjustments we might need to make with our policies and protocols, and then we'll bring our employees back to a slow and gradual return of employees. We, we only anticipate 10 to 20 percent occupancy in the first three weeks of December. So very, very uh, small number of guests. So we'll be able to fine-tune all of our protocols. And then as things progress through the Christmas and holiday season, we'll still be at a reduced occupancy just because we'll have rooms out of service. So for us, it's it's a great, uh, slow runway back to Uh, A little bit more of a normal occupancy.
0: What's a snapshot of your staff? What did you have pre-pandemic? Total number of staff here
4: were right around 235, and then down at the Plantation Inn, we're about six people. So we'll we'll slowly bring back the guest-facing and occupancy-driven positions, such as food and beverage and housekeeping, at a slow bring back. And that also helps with one-on-one training as we we train our employees so it's not bringing 80 people back or, or something large like that. We're Able to work one on one and answer questions, and do it in a, in a very safe, controlled manner, so that everybody has confidence that the uh, protocols that are being implemented are safe for both the employees and the guests.
0: What's it been like, you know, coordinating with, you know, like the health department? If, let's say, you know, one of your customers tests positive, you know, wh- what's the protocol there?
4: We have a great relationship with the Maui Office of Department of Health. We've been working with them since April. So we've had positive cases stay at the, the hotel under the authority of Department of Health and the National Guard. So we've been working with them all the way since April. So we have a very very good protocols in place with them, should anything happen with our, our guests on that side of things. So that's that's also a very good benefit. We've already done multiple dry runs with them.
0: So uh, is there a facility there that people could go? For quarantine, or, is, is, or has something been set up at your property?
4: Yeah, we we're able to cordon off a, a wing, a floor of a wing, for guests that have that situation come up. So between the, like I mentioned, all the Department of Health protocols, we we're on speed dial with each other, and, and it's just a situation where we've done it so much that it's, it's not a, a reason for panic, but here's the protocols, and we go through all that, food and beverage operations, have organized breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the guests, and we want to treat them as guests and make it as enjoyable as possible.
0: And what are you hearing from the other hoteliers?
4: They're experiencing very, very small occupancy numbers, slowly bringing things back, trying to understand what is needed, um, communication helping explain all of that. There's a lot of guest questions like what what is there to experience when I come back, whether it's your luau or your spa or activities on the island. So it's a lot of information gathering and making sure you're going straight to the source so there's not this coconut wireless going on, but really getting the up-to-date facts for our guests.
0: Any indication about market from Japan bouncing back or uh Canada?
4: Japan for Maui is a very small number. It's a low single digits uh, overall during pre-pandemic. So we, we're not going to anticipate much movement there until maybe the back half of 2021. The Canadian market, that is a, a, our number one international market for Maui. We need to work with the Canadian government so they don't have to quarantine when they go back to Canada as well. And Hawaii Tourism Canada is is taking the lead and doing some amazing things to allow that to start to happen, also on Maui we have a lot of timeshare. So those Canadian clients want to come back down to to their condos and timeshares and experience Maui. You know, it's getting cold up in Canada,
0: right? And and uh, you know, I I'm not really sure. You know, what airlines are, um, are resuming their routes?
4: Yeah, WestJet and Air Canada have all our schedules started in December. And then they will pick up a little bit more. And and it's predicated on the two nations, but also the the specific situation between Hawaii and Canada. And as that gets ironed out, uh, I think you're going to see an increase in airlift as well between the two locations. I wish we could open bigger and fuller, but I think the, the prudent thing to do is to take it step by step, slowly and surely, make sure we're doing everything right, and then we can to bring employees back on board into sort of the end of first quarter 2021.
0: Did you plan to have the main tower open?
4: Yeah, that one uh, we knew it was going to take quite a bit. That one has 180 rooms of mm-hmm. our 432, so quite a bit of our occupancy is, is in that. Uh, the, the great thing about our property uh, is that we've always been driven by Hawaiian values, and that's how we, we do things. Um, here day in and day out, whether it's um, for our employees or for our guests. And the concept of Malama, which is uh, sort of uh, new um, to, to a lot of different information that you're hearing from Hawaii Tourism Authority, we've been doing that since the 80s, and, and we really need to step up and make sure that, that we do take care. Um, we are a host culture. We are in the hospitality business. And part of that is also conveying to everybody what is required of them. Uh, we, we want you to take care of our environment, take care of our community, uh, follow the guidelines. So it's, it's uh, definitely changing a little bit of the tenor of the message that you might have been seeing from HPCB. And we've been practicing that as well. We, we want... Uh, we want to welcome you into our home, but we also want you to take your shoes off at the door and, and, and be respectful uh, as well. So it's it's a
0: two-way street,
4: and uh, I think that will be uh, very key for, for us moving forward as a, as an industry.
0: That was John White, marketing manager of the Kaanapali Beach Hotel, talking about this next phase of recovery of the Maui market. Civil Beats Reality Check looks at the clock that's ticking on spending down the federal CARES money. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us this morning. Hi, Stuart.
5: Hi, Catherine.
0: So, gosh, you know, I mean, we've been hearing about this deadline, but there are all kinds of different pots of money and programs that are uh, operating out there to kind of spread it around.
5: Yes, that's right. There are many pots of money, many programs. Uh, the one we're looking at today is uh, known as the Coronavirus Relief Fund. It's part of the CARES Act money uh, that Hawaii got, and, and that started with about $1.3 billion. Uh, right now, uh, there's probably, it, it sounds like about uh, $877 million, but it's very fluid. The money's really being spent. Uh, rapidly so it's it's a moving target but as best we could tell as of last week there was maybe 877 million unspent
0: now you were talking to uh, merchants that uh, applied for the pivot grant program right
5: exactly so that is part of this big 877 million dollar pool there's something called the uh, hawaii business pivot grant program it's micro grants ten thousand dollars that you can get if you're adapting your business somehow to deal with uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic and somehow shifting. So uh, the thing we found out was that, um, ironically, businesses that really need it most, that don't have the cash to invest to pivot, can't get it. And why is that? Well, the state said, look, we want you to spend the money out front, up front, account for it so we can make sure it's a qualified expenditure, and then we'll reimburse you. Um, this speaks to the, one of the reasons that it's hard to spend a lot of money and do so in an accountable way.
0: And there are also some administrative problems that the state was having, you know, just trying to write the checks
5: well the state has an enormous amount of money it's trying to give out right and this is the this is part of the challenge you know the the a, as we discussed there's uh, started with uh, 1.3 billion dollars in this in this fund alone remember there were also other uh, there's also other money the state's been kind of passing through and dealing with you know for all of the problems that we've seen with unemployment insurance payments, and a lot of people have been left off uh, in the lurch with those. The state still, you know, gave out uh, and administered an enormous, really a staggering amount of money in a short time.
0: Yeah, those are record. That was Richard like claims. Yes,
5: yeah, like one point over a billion dollars to individuals.
0: And the latest uh, that we were hearing about the rental assistance program. Initially, they were they were doing going pretty good, cutting those checks fairly quickly, but. I guess, what, some of those uh, applications weren't filled out properly?
5: Yes, exactly. It's, it's it's similar to the Pivot Grant program. You know, the applications need to be done really well. Um, there can't be any questions, not anything outstanding, because, again, the state needs to be accountable for this. And they were finding that um, something like half of the applications had missing information. Again, remember, this is... Uh, This is uh, two nonprofits that are administering this program for the state. And, again, we're talking thousands and thousands, over 10,000 applications for this uh, rental assistance program alone.
0: Yeah, it it is pretty staggering. Now, um, I thought it was interesting that uh, you uh, point out that, you know, if we don't meet the deadline for some of the spending, some of that money will still stick around.
5: Right. The concern initially was that the money would lapse back to the federal government. The, administ- the EGA administration has said we're going to spend the money to replenish the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund, which uh, had to be borrowed from to pay unemployment insurance claims. Um, this is important for businesses because uh, they will be assessed with a fee based on a formula if the trust fund – goes below a certain amount so if they can put money back into the trust fund it'll help these businesses many businesses in the long run later
0: okay so that's a silver lining that uh, it'll be a cushion uh, as we go into the new year
5: right it will be a cushion but for now it doesn't help the small businesses other people who are trying to get these grants or uh, as you mentioned the rent relief all of these things um, are designed for specific parts of the community. You know, the real problem is so many people need help right now, and there's only so much money to go around, and the state needs to try to both administer it and then do so in a way that's responsible and accountable.
0: Yeah, I wish I could be a fairy godbrother. I'd wave my wand and, and all the checks would be cut. <laughs> Thanks so much, Stuart.
5: Thank you, Catherine.
0: That was reporter Stuart Yerton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Following our conversations about diversifying our economy by boosting local hemp in agriculture, the new cookbook, Hawaii, a Vegan Paradise, and Veterans Day services at Punchbowl, we heard this on our Talkback line.
1: Steve Kaiser calling from Javi. You know, all this talk about hemp growing and everything, seems to me we're missing the fact that this could be just another invasive species coming in, you know, with the seeds and all like that. Um, I'm just worried that, you know, here we are, we're introducing another...
6: Weed, because that's what it really is. Mahalo. Hi.
0: Aloha. I'm calling from Haiku, Maui. My name is Melinda Walker, and I wanted to thank you so much for the piece on the book, Hawaii A Vegan Paradise. Rarely do we hear pieces on the vegan or vegetarian diet highlighted as an option for good health, and I truly, truly want to give a big mahalo for giving us that story and sharing that possibility of delicious vegan cooking. That was a terrific story. Mahalo.
6: My name is Laura Fink. I'm a longtime Makiki resident. My grandfather's buried in Punchbowl. And you know, I just learned from the switchboard operator up at Punchbowl that they will not be putting up the flags on the Puo Vaina Drive. And as I said, my grandfather's buried there. We have friends who are buried and are there. My husband is retired Army. Our son is an active duty Air Force pilot. So we really look forward to those flags every year. Okay, thank you. Bye.
0: Well, Laura, we did follow up to ask about the flags. We got this reply from an employee of the Hoy State Veterans Cemetery. Some flags were still put up on Veterans Day, but the full display of flags usually seen on Veterans Day weren't raised because the cemetery did not hold its usual full services due to COVID-19. Thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at org. Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our Talkback line, 972-8217.
2: Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, owners and managers of office, industrial, and retail properties across the state. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii for 150 years with a commitment to provide for the needs of island communities.
0: Are you service-minded? HPR is looking for a full-time membership coordinator to give our station members and volunteers the care and support they deserve. If you love public radio and are ready to join our lively and highly interactive workplace, learn more on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Applications due by November 30th. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now check in with H.P.R.'s Dave Lawrence and astronomer Christopher Phillips about the possibility of subglacial lakes on the surface of Mars. Here's your Monday Stargazer.
3: Stargazer time. Our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny, very troubled planet. And as usual, we are thrilled to have the guidance and expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. And yes, we've got him on the line right now. Hey Chris, welcome back. What is in store this week?
6: Hey Dave, it's good to be here. So this week's stargazers, Jupiter and Saturn will be visible in the west till around 9.30pm. The moon is approaching its first quarter phase and will remain unintrusive in our night sky through to the weekend.
3: And this week we have exciting news from Chris. We're taking a return trip to Mars, a place that we have ventured to for information many, many, many times on the segment. And this time, I understand it's possible lakes there?
6: Indeed. Mars has once again become the focus of attention for the planetary science community. This time, it's the suggested presence of subglacial lakes beneath the planet's surface that could potentially hold vast quantities of liquid water. Data taken of one lake in particular, known as Ultimae scopuli, has been revisited using newly developed data analysis techniques. And scientists are convinced that Ultimae scopuli does indeed contain liquid water.
3: And one would think this could be, and of course you'll correct me if I have any of this wrong, that the water might be kind of salty.
6: Absolutely right. In fact, the salt content is the only thing that's keeping this water in a liquid state. If it wasn't for that, it would just be a giant frozen icy mass.
3: And if memory serves me correct, there is actually an earthbound kind of feature that's similar to that, and it would be in Antarctica, yeah?
6: Yeah. It's Lake Vostok in Antarctica, Mm. and it's deep below the ice, over a mile deep, in fact. It has remained liquid for millions of years due to a high salt content. And interestingly, Lake Vostok is possibly home to microbial life.
3: And you're thinking maybe there could be some microbial life in the Martian lakes?
6: Well, it's a possibility, but there is a catch, unfortunately, (laughs) as you would expect. (laughs) So here on Earth, we are geologically active, and we have volcanoes and hot springs that feed many subsurface bodies of water. Mars, on the other hand, is considered geologically inactive, and Mm. so these lakes may lack important sources of energy to make them truly habitable to life as we know it. But with a new lander and Martian science set to begin in less than 100 days, we can hopefully look forward to some answers in 2021.
3: And we know you'll tell us about it right here on Stargazer. Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org.
2: Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock conservation and land stewardship since 1888. Working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at HaleakalaRanch.com.
0: For today's quiz, we're marking King David Kalakaua's 184th birthday. He was the next to the last monarch of the Kingdom of Hawaii, who reigned from 1874 to 1891 born to caesar uh, kapaakea and analea his early morning birth took place at his grandfather's grass hut compound located at Punchbowl crater he married the young widow kapiolani who was queen emma's lady-in-waiting and prince albert's nurse and caretaker fondly known as the merry monarch the kingdom celebrated his 50th birthday with a two-week golden jubilee it was marked by ceremony and celebrations that included a jubilee ball and a marksmanship contest won by the honolulu rifles Harper's Weekly reported in 1891 that the final cost of the Jubilee was $75,000. And that was the answer we were looking for. No winners today. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Did you know that during the Civil War, Hawaii provided rice to the northern states of the Union? It's a little-known fact about the reign of rice in the islands. At its peak in 1909, Hawaii had more than 9,000 acres in production. The industry died out in the 1920s. Currently, there's a move to resurrect rice as a crop in Hawaii. Kauai farmer Jerry Ornelas is uh, preparing to plant his winter crop of rice this month. His summer harvest was bountiful, and he is encouraged by his success so far. We were there on the garden aisle early on in the year to check on his rice fields as Ornelis is trying to carve out a market for Hawaii-grown sushi and table rice.
7: This is a little winter nursery that I'm doing. It's got 20 different varieties of rice in it. Most of them are um, japanica, which are short grain, but we've also got some other varieties as well. It's about a month old right now.
0: And so what's your hope for this?
7: I think the big picture is that we revive the rice industry here in Hawaii, which uh, was once thriving. You know, we're a state of rice eaters, and I think there is a demand for locally grown rice. So for many, many other uses, um, everything from uh, table rice to brewing to very high-end sushi rice.
0: So you think the possibilities are, are there? We just need to be able to, what, find the right type? Of rice to grow
7: again. Yeah, I think you know, varietal trials are going to be very important. You know, we we need to select varieties that do well here, and rice in general does really well in Hawaii. It's it's amazing how how um, how adapted it is to our climate. That relates to why it was once such a uh, important crop here. You know, as we were
0: driving around Hawaii, you were pointing out areas that all used to be in rice, and you know. It's just here and there now. You know, you've got uh, farmers doing research in order to kind of jumpstart this again. It's gonna take a tremendous amount of effort, I imagine.
7: You know, a lot of the farmers that obviously that used to do rice are no longer with us. So it's gonna be uh, kind of a steep learning curve for us. Uh, Fortunately, you know, there's, there's resources out there. There's, you know, the University of Hawaii, there's the Department of Agriculture, the USDA. You know, one of the problems we're having, of course, is finding rice seed, which is really hard to come by.
0: Talk about that problem.
7: Yeah, you know, rice is heavily quarantined because of diseases, so virtually impossible to import rice seed from any country uh, into the United States. The other problem we're running into is that a lot of the rice varieties are, they're proprietary. So uh, a lot of it has been developed by rice cooperatives whose members you know, contribute so much per ton of rice that they sell to research. So um, you know, it's very difficult. They will not part with the seed.
0: You've managed to get some varieties though to kind of jump start this test plot.
7: Yes, I have. You know, I've been at this for um, four years now. You know, finally, this this light at the end of the tunnel, we we are able to do some varietal trials now. We've been growing some varieties that are uh, what we refer to as heritage rice varieties, but, you know, we don't know much about the quality of the rice. So we're looking for varieties that are are well recognized. Those would include table rice as well as uh, rice used for brewing and uh, mochi rice as well.
0: When you talk rice for brewing, I mean, that could be another niche market as the trend now for craft beers and sake. Mm-hmm,
7: Sochu, sake, craft beers, all of the above. I think, um, you know, if we can get a, uh, if we can supply brewers with, with good quality rice, then I, I think there's real potential for expansion of, of that.
0: Talk about the challenges that you've had, either just with water or bugs, uh, birds. <laughs>
7: Birds are a huge problem. As you can see um, our fields are, are, are all netted. You know, water is an issue. It's becoming more and more contentious. You know, rice uses a lot of water. So, you know, we're trying to develop methods. The water comes into the field and then exits, usually back into the same source it came out of. So that, that's a non-consumptive use. Well, right now we're kind of in the proof of concept phase where we, we, we're trying to see what varieties work well what methods of cultivation work well. We haven't really gotten into marketing yet. Once the proof of concept is done, that phase is done, then we're gonna start looking at what kind of markets can we get, can we access.
0: And there are other farmers here uh, on Kauai that are testing out rice again.
7: Yeah, there is, there is one operation on Grow Farmland that does rice research for a California rice cooperative And that's been going on for a long time. The University of Hawaii also had a um, paddy crop station in Wailua where they also did rice research for the California growers. So Kauai is a popular place to do rice. And of course, it's had such a long history. So it's
0: rice seed is what we're talking about.
7: Yes, that's correct, rice seed. You know, Because we can do a winter crop, which they can't do on the mainland, they look to Kauai to do their winter nursery growing.
0: And so if there are other folks out there that are interested in experimenting with, you know, kind of like what you're doing here, whether it's here on on Kilauea or Oahu, I mean, I don't know, because Oahu used to be covered with a lot of rice paddies as well.
7: Yeah, the two major rice growing regions uh, in Hawaii, you know, at the height of the um, rice industry was Hawaii and Oahu. What else, I guess, is a big challenge? We got flooded out in, in April of 2018. And that set the whole project back a year. You know, obviously, you know, rice is, uh, much like taro, is grown in areas that are prone to flooding. So uh, flooding, you know, with climate change, I think is is really gonna be an issue. Yeah, one of the saving graces of rice is that it can tolerate brackish water more so than taro. So I think some of those coastal areas will be well suited for rice. uh, forward.
0: You attended a recent climate change meeting uh, where a number of farmers churned out. What are some of the issues that uh, were discussed at that?
7: Sources of water, flooding, salt intrusion in the the lower elevation farms. You know, the perception that, that farmers are polluters, that we're contributing to the problem, and to a certain extent we do. Of course, we do use fossil fuels, some crops, especially paddy crops, are contribute methane, which is a very bad, bad greenhouse gas. So, you know, how do we you know, mitigate some of these problems and how do we respond to um, questions from the public regarding this?
0: You also had some ideas about teaming up with the tourist industry, looking for ways that that industry can help our farmers.
7: Yeah, as, that relates, as it relates to climate change, you know, farmers also sequester a lot of carbon uh, in their farms, as do ranchers. So um, is there a possibility that there could be some kind of carbon credit exchange, you know, with, with industries like the airlines, which contribute a lot of carbon to the atmosphere, the cruise industry, tourist industry in general, you know, is there a possibility that we can team up with them and help them to offset some of these carbon?
0: help our local farmers survive.
7: Yeah, that's correct. You know, we have a real problem with profitability in farming in Hawaii. And one of the reasons more people don't farm is that it's not a really lucrative business at this at this uh, point in time.
0: Well, you've got this test plot of rice, but you're surrounded by all your trees because you, you raise everything from lychee to avocados.
7: That's correct. Yeah, longan, lychee, uh, breadfruit, some breadfruit, some avocado, and uh, mostly orchard crops. But if we're serious about feeding ourselves, then we're going to have to look at what it takes to have a very healthy diet, right? Which of course includes um, carbohydrates. You know, leafy greens, great man, want superfood, right? But you know, we're going to have to find starches. You know, and we don't have, we don't grow many grains in Hawaii. And the only grain we can grow here successfully, I think, is rice. And you know the fact that we're a state of rice eaters gives me hope that you know there may be a potential for this crop. Rice is about a four or five month crop, depending on the variety that you plant. So you know there is the potential for us to do several crops a year.
0: And as far as pests, uh, what's been the experience so far?
7: So far, so good. Aside from birds, we don't get much pest damage.
0: Okay, so that, that's hopeful then. <laughs>
7: well, you know, we started with a clean slate, and I think we have a real opportunity here. So, you know, I would caution anybody that's interested in, in, in growing rice to make sure that whatever seed they do bring in, right, is approved by, you know, the Department of Ag and not something that they've snuck in, right? This could really devastate the, the, the industry early on. There's not only pathogens, but also weed seeds that might get into rice. Uh, Some would evolve to look almost exactly like rice. And if they get into our crops, you know, it's going to be a major setback.
0: So you've got to tread carefully as we launch this again.
7: Yeah, and that applies to all crops, of course. That You know, we're introducing a lot of new crops now, so I would caution everyone to make sure that you're, you're getting certified seed.
0: And then the water that you're getting is all gravity fred?
7: Yeah, at this point it's gravity fed, you know, we're having uh, some issues with our irrigation system here on East Kauai and we don't know, you know, going forward if we're going to have to pump water. You know, so far we've been carbon neutral as far as irrigation goes, but you know, with the demise of the East Kauai irrigation system, you know, we may have to start pumping water now.
0: Right, and so what was happening was you had a cooperative, now that's going away.
7: Yeah, we stopped operations on um, December 31st of 2019 you know the regulatory burden was just getting too heavy for us as a group we were kind of aging out hoping that a younger generation would come along and and carry on the work the system that we use is in or we're taking care of is entirely state-owned and you know we had hoped that it could be had been transferred to the Department of Agriculture and when that didn't happen we're still working on it but that that didn't happen this year so you know, we're hopeful that some solution can be worked out, but um, you know, right now, um, it doesn't look very good. This whole exercise, you know, looking at the bigger picture, has to do with you know, diversifying our economy. We are so dependent on, on tourism, and you know, given recent events, you know, pandemics and so on, you know, I'm, I'm fearful that at some point the hotel industry or the visitor industry is going to be impacted in a negative way. And you know, we really need to strengthen our economy and, and, and restore agriculture to its rightful place as a, as a driver of our economy, which it once was.
0: That was Koei farmer Jerry Ornellis who's working to spark the interest of local farmers in reviving rice as a local crop. He's working to provide sushi and table rice for the Hawaii market. And that's it for today. Tomorrow we hear from another Kauai farmer. You might know Rodney Haraguchi for his taro farms, which used to be all in rice. And why is there talk about planting rice for the nene? Well, do you have an idea about rice you want to share? Call our talk back line 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.